So this evening I'd like to speak about the landscape of compassion, the landscape of compassion, the interrelationship of our inner world with our outer world. From what I hear and see in the various communities that I'm involved with and uh, from probably what you all know of yourself, what we all feel in our hearts, in our minds, as we really open to what's going on in the world, we see that there's a growing sense of urgency to help, to do what we can, to use our inner resources, our gifts, however insignificant we sense them to be, but just to do what we can to be of help in the world to touch the world, which is increasing in complexity, increasing in speed, and to touch it with simplicity, to touch it with some kind of slowing down in any ways that we can, to touch it with kindness. Equally as strong as uh, we all see in the world today, there is also a growing spiritual urgency to go within, not just to use our inner resources outwardly, but to see what's going on inwardly and to see what we can do to develop a mind and heart that more uh, easily and readily inclines to what is wholesome. So that, of course, we use that wholesomeness more readily more easily in the world. We go within to that place of simply recognizing, simply acknowledging that inner landscape, knowing ourselves very, very well. It's not just a matter of hanging out in our minds and hearts in some beautiful place, but also to go to those places that are difficult to go to in our hearts and minds and learn how to be with them in a balanced way. Learn to see the true nature of them, not the nature simply that this is a momentary nature of, for example, aversion or greed arising in the mind, but to see through that momentary appearance beyond the greed and hatred and delusion, of course. So we want to know ourselves, know the inner landscape, so we don't project that if it's unwholesome, projecting our reactivity out there in the world. This is why we're doing this. We're training the mind to see what's unwholesome and to relinquish that to know what is wholesome, and to nurture that. The three basic understandings about the Buddha's teaching and about what he taught was to nurture what is wholesome, to relinquish what is unwholesome, and to develop the mind. And we're doing all three of those things in our practice here together. So we want to understand ourselves 
to experience a clear view of how it is actually in our hearts, not overlaying a concept of how we want it to be, but to be in the reality of how it is. This takes a sobering honesty. This is not uh, for the faint of heart, as some people say about Vipassana practice. It takes unflinching courage to see what the underpinnings of our personality are. It takes that courage to lead into the moment's experience of what's arising and passing away in our minds and our hearts, to lead into it from our hearts, not from our heads. A couple of years ago, I read a beautiful article in the Shambhala Sun. It was about Buddhist women, and this was Agnes Au speaking. She talks about opening to this uh, pain of the heart, the unpleasant experiences, knowing the inner terrain, and being able to see it so clearly that it unlayers, that we go deeper and deeper into the layers of what I just call the underpinnings of the heart and the mind. So she says, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace, and in so doing, to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. The vividness of an unfiltered life. Some of you have expressed how it has become so utterly vivid, so utterly clear. And with the practices that we're doing, the practice of balancing the heart and mind, the possibility of opening to that, no matter how painful it is, and not flinching, not pushing it away. Also with this practice of balance, we can open to the beauty of the heart when there are moments and times of uh, an absence of a lot of commenting and thinking in the mind and not get so attached to that place. So this is what opening to the what's happening with balance helps us to do. Seeing it all vividly in an unfiltered way. Unfiltered means it doesn't have the filter of attachment or aversion there. So through this process we discover what are the habitual forces of the mind and the heart, the beautiful ones that we nurture or we try to uh, uh, help to come into being, and the ones that are not so beautiful, that we learn to simply be mindful of, be balanced around. Notice their impermanent nature. So what are these forces that create this inner terrain and that have an effect on the outer terrain? It's interesting to me more recently how it's become so clear how we live so much in our thoughts. We live so much in our reactivity. And that is projected out into the world. And so, in effect, we live in that projection. 
And then there are others that are projecting their, their thoughts and reactivity on to and into the world we live in. And so we're constantly living in this unreal world, projected by our thoughts, other people's thoughts, in reactivity to ours, or in reactivity to our reactivity. And so it's just just these this constant layering of illusion that we live in, not in the vividness of life. So by knowing our inner terrain, we not only understand, recognize, acknowledge the habitual forces that create disharmony, but we also recognize those habitual forces that cause peace, that cause harmony, happiness, on an individual level, on a social level. And we see how when we're very clear about that, when that is what's acted upon, our worlds become more peaceful and our interaction of worlds become more clear. It's just so amazing to me when I'm in the world of people who understand their own minds who are honest and have that kind of humility to face what's going on within themselves. And to be able, we're able to be with each other. Even when we're expressing difficulties of our lives together, there's just a sense of great peace around it, a sense of um, actually being real, a sense of living our lives in an unfiltered way. And it's a great thing to be grateful about. So we recognize what's peaceful, what's harmonious, and incline towards that. I mentioned several times what the Buddha said, what a person reflects upon over and over again, to that his or her mind will incline. So we see what forces create an ecology of unrest, an ecology of distress, disharmony, fear, on an individual level, on a social level. We come to face dukkha, or the truth of suffering, as Steve spoke about last night, in that unflinching kind of way, and open to the fact of dukkha. It's not about denying it anymore. It's not about personalizing either, personalizing it. It's just about saying, this is what it is. This is part of life. Not resisting it, not covering it up, not camouflaging it. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, until you understand the meaning of suffering, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. Isn't it true that when we experience, just on that level, when we experience the suffering that we see in another, somehow there's a great connection between our hearts. Somehow that compassion that's inherent in our hearts can come out very spontaneously, very organically. 
So can we be clear? Can we be accepting of this fact of suffering, this fact of dukkha? Someone said today that just the understanding of dukkha was actually a great relief to this person. It, it didn't make this person's heart clench or be tighter or be more worried, but it was just a relief to know, to accept this is how it is in every moment. This change, this pain, this pleasure that we can enjoy for the moment, but also know with wisdom that it will go away. Can we be accepting of the forces that swiftly arise and just as swiftly bring up that wisdom to know that if it's, uh, if it's going to cause disharmony, then we can relinquish it. If it's going to cause harmony, then we can nourish it. So to nurture what creates harmony, to disarm what is harmful. Again, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, a lot of quotes from him because he's a model of compassion living in our world today. We're so fortunate to have such a model. He calls the great disarmament is not the disarming of these uh, how many various atomic bombs or whatever they are that are out there. But the real disarming is the disarming of greed and hatred in our own hearts. And that's what we really have to work on. Because we may not have any effect with, you know, all that uh, big stuff out there, but we have a great effect on our own hearts and what we're doing with ourselves. So without doing this quiet inner investigation, clearly seeing the inner landscape, we can never hope to have a truthful effect on the outer landscape of the world. We can never hope to touch it with kindness if we can't touch our own hearts with kindness. Granted, With our practice, we may not radically change the world. We may have an effect on the world. But transforming our own inner hearts is a real possibility. And that can cause ripples around our friends, our family, and they to their friends and their family, and so on and so forth, that there is a possibility of affecting much more than just ourselves when we do this practice. So it requires this tremendous compassion for ourselves to be able to do this, to be able to know that what we're doing is useful. His Holiness, again, the Dalai Lama, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right It just stops these atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. So usually compassion is thought of in terms of helping or saving others, facing the suffering out there and acting on that 
And that is true, of course. That's a given understanding that all of us live our lives upon and with. But if we understand that that's the only part that's true, then we're missing something that's altogether very key to the whole total understanding of compassion. And that is that compassion is a tender-hearted care and willingness to face what's within us, to develop the courage and the balance to open to what's difficult and to touch it with compassion, to touch it with mindfulness, which is another act of compassion. And so this is what we're all doing here. The Buddha said, There is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of, the not seeing of, which keeps us bound on this cycle, and that is the noble truth of suffering. Not accepting the noble truth of suffering, not opening to it, keeps us bound on this cycle of ignorance. In the beginning of my practice, I said that I wanted to open to the spiritual life and open to the truth. And I came to understand that I just couldn't open to what was easy and what was beautiful and what was comfortable. And I couldn't just... um, I wasn't the kind of person that could just rest in awareness when somebody gave that instruction that was possible for me and it was worthwhile for me to open to what was uncomfortable too and to face that with awareness and the different tools like compassion, like equanimity. So one of the descriptions frequently given of compassion, or you might hear the word karuna, is that it makes the hearts of the good quiver when others are afflicted with sorrow. It's said that the chief characteristic is the wish or the inclination for the removal of suffering. And so when we look into our own hearts, when there is suffering around us, and even if we can see it, and face it within us, there's also a part of us that is ready to do what we can. And this is the quivering of the heart. It's just like the readiness to say or to do what we can with the situation. When I read this for the first time, or I might have heard it for the first time, it makes the hearts of the good quiver when others are afflicted by sorrow, I thought and experienced how it is that my heart felt alive, not dead, not in apathy, not in a distant removal from what was going on, but really connected to what was happening. There was a quivering there with the balance there at times, and of course sometimes no balance But the quivering meant to me that my heart was alive. 
the Buddhists was said to have this great compassion. They called it Mahakaruna, great compassion, great karuna, the quivering of the heart, powerfully inclining towards the removal of suffering, not just for himself, but for all beings. And so every time it it just feels so hard for me to go on with the practice. And there are times in my own practice, uh, yearly, I try to do a month to two months of intensive practice myself every year. Whenever I remember that, that all of these teachings are riding on the compassion of this particular root teacher of ours, the Buddha, it gives me uh, a great deal of hope and confidence, a great deal of energy to carry on, a great deal of connection with a great being. When I ever I hear the teachings of sila, or living in harmony, samadhi, which means mental training, the mental training of vipassana, the mental training of the four brahma-viharas, among many others, panya of meaning wisdom, whenever I hear any of those teachings in whatever... Um, at whatever time, in whatever order, even if I've heard them over and over and over again, I have great gratitude um, that I can ride on that great compassionate wave. It's said that there are two wings of the Dharma, compassion and wisdom, and they both need to be developed in order for the great bird of truth to fly, the great bird of the Dharma to fly. We see for ourselves that this compassion, this ability to come close to what is difficult, to what is painful, supports the development of wisdom. Wisdom is developed by coming close to all experience. Wisdom is not developed if we just kind of... uh, live where there is in our minds and hearts where nothing's happening. The growth is comes when we can open to what's actually happening, know how to handle it, see through it, understand the deep wisdoms that come from facing it, the wisdom of seeing the impermanence, the wisdom of seeing the corelessness or the anatta quality of all of life, the wisdom of seeing the unsatisfactoriness, the fact that there's nothing that lasts that we can stand on, hold on to, that will give us everlasting happiness. So when that wisdom grows and it bears fruit in a in a very delicious way, then it said, and we feel, we experience that a natural compassion comes out of that. Because how can we do anything but have compassion for others, for ourselves, who continue to suffer? If we have wisdom, it's the wise thing to do. Our hearts quiver because we can open to the rawness of life, 
the helplessness, the vulnerability that we all face. And we can choose to bear it with love, the love that's balanced, that's spacious, a love that's accepting, a love that's able to say, of course, this leads to harm, this leads to harmony. And to separate the action from the person. By that I mean sometimes when a person has caused harm uh, to myself or to my family, of course it hurts and I have to face the hurt inside of myself. But the love that's there, that's able to open to the hurt inside of me, is more likely to open to the hurt inside of that person. And somewhere along the line, I come to see that that person is not totally that particular action. That action was just one part of that person's life. And there's so much more to that person. There's so much more, a lot of times more than I could know, more than you could know. And it's a disservice that we do to others when we take one action or maybe even several actions that a person acts out in his or her life and we say that that's all of you. So we're able to face that and bear it with great love. The vulnerability expressed in the first noble truth in a simple, straightforward sense is that we're all bound to this cycle of sickness, old age, and death. All of us are. We can't get away from that. As Steve was saying last night, this is all part of life. This is the first noble truth. Of suffering. Recognizing and opening to that vulnerability is a great wisdom. Just being able to do that already, act of compassion, act of wisdom, accepting that this is the way it is. Somebody uh, wrote this strange but truthful humor uh, to me. Life is a sexually transmitted disease which is always fatal. So when we've had to deal with challenging people in our lives and what gets activated inside is our reactivity, our anguish, our anxiety, our blame, our uh, judging mind, When this has happened to me, I try to uh, just open to the bigger picture of dukkha and to include all of us in it, those who have been hurt and those who have caused hurt and harm. And it just helps me, not even in a little way, but in a big way, to uh, just accept that we're all part of this I may not be able to see the pain of that other person's life who caused harm to me, 
or to my loved ones, but certainly it is true for that person also. So the tenderness of compassion can come in. It's said that there are two great constant companions of karuna or compassion, equanimity that we've been practicing and loving-kindness. The unconditional caring of loving-kindness turned towards suffering is what compassion is, actually, whether it's a situation in the outer world or a situation in our inner life, we turn that, uh, that love out there, in here, and what we get is compassion, that fearlessness to face what we need to face, that says, I give my care to this painful situation, whether it's out there or in here, no matter what's happening that we can constantly offer our care, constantly offer our love. Even though what the person is doing is harmful, I mean, this is the highest test. This is the, you know, high bar. Even when they're doing what's harmful, can we still offer our love? Can we still open our hearts with compassion? So many, many years ago, um, when my my first grandchild came into the world, she had a very difficult time. And um, she went through some hardships with her, her own father. And um, there came a time when I had to go and help my daughter and her daughter uh, just kind of come back home I went to get her in San Diego. And we ha- I had to do it at a time when we had to move everything at a time when uh, the person wasn't there. My granddaughter's father wasn't there. So we did a lot. We, we had to move quickly. We had to um, do it under great pressure. And there was a lot of confusion and there was a lot of hurt, but we we finally did it. And we got on the plane. And so we were just, my daughter and I were just exhausted and had little granddaughter, you know, straddled between us. And I said to her, it's really hard for me to accept that this has happened. This is really hard that we've had to go through all this and this whole situation is the way that it is. And she said, yeah, Mom, I know. And she said, you know what? He went through a lot of hard times in his life. And then she went on to describe to me similar situation. And, you know, I just put my own pain aside and my heart just opened to the pain that he had to go through. And all of a sudden, it wasn't my pain, it wasn't his pain, it wasn't my granddaughter's pain or my daughter's pain, it was the pain. It was like, that was the first noble truth. And one of the first times that I actually just experienced it in that kind of rawness, that it wasn't so personal, that it was just part of this universal 
truth of dukkha. So with no regrets, with our love, we do what we can to help. We do everything we can to help. But try to do it with as much love and compassion as possible. And I say as much as possible because sometimes we're not able to muster up so much. Maybe it's just a little bit, but it's something. And without um, attachment to result of what we do. There's a story of um, a famous golfer from Argentina. His name is Robert Di Vincenzo. And it's a situation about the relationship of taking action with that unconditionality, with no attachment to result. So the story goes that he once won a tournament. And after receiving the check, he went to the clubhouse and was prepared to leave. Sometime later, he walked alone to his car uh, in the parking lot, and he was approached by a young woman. She congratulated him on his victory and then told him that her daughter was seriously ill and didn't have long to live. So he was touched, very touched by her story. And so he took out a pen and endorsed his winning check to her, and he pressed the check in her hand, and he said, Make some nice days for your daughter. So later in the week, he was having lunch at the country club when an official came to him, and he said, Some of the guys in the parking lot told me you met a young woman after the tournament, and you gave her the check. And she said, he said, uh, to De Vincenzo, you know, she's a phony. She doesn't have a daughter. There's no one sick. She fleeced you, my friend. And De Vincenzo said, you mean there's no baby dying? And the official said, no, there's no baby dying. And he said, that's the best news I've heard all week. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Just let go of... <laughs> He was just so glad that there was nothing wrong. So just about doing our action and letting go of results, I mean, that was a pretty high bar. In relationship to our own inner experiences of fear and of pain, sometimes it's not so easy. Sometimes it's easier for us to feel our compassion for others, not for ourselves. So Steve and I have two little granddaughters. We have an older one, and um, these two little ones live in Hawaii. And just a story about them and how one time uh, they both fell down. They kind of both fell out of a wagon that actually um, Steve was pulling them in, (laughs) turned a corner and poof, (laughs) something like that. And so they're, you know, they're both sturdy little girls and they weren't that hurt. And so when they got back to the house, uh, the younger one came in. She was really crying. She was, I don't know, maybe two and a half, three then. And she's a kind of the drama queen of our family at this point. Used to be some others, but now she's the one. (laughs) And so she was really, really crying and she said, 
grandma kamala grandma kamala i got hurt got an owie get the ice get the ice and so i went to get the ice and she showed me her owie and she said kiss my owie make it better make it better so okay you know do all the things that grown-ups do to attend to the body and she was saying oh hurt my body hurt and all that so we attended to that in the meantime the older sister was nearby on the couch and she was trying crying and had some little crocodile tears and you know I could see her there in some kind of self-pity and so I went close and I said Emily what's going on with you and she said I got hurt too and I said you did but you didn't show me your owie and she said I have an owie I hurt too I said show me and she said my heart and I thought you know thought, wow this is great that she can recognize the hurt in her own heart she felt you know a little like we were paying more attention to the other one and um, that's what hurt her it was so good that I could see that she could do that and um to be sensitive to what's going on in our own hearts, to have compassion for that place is a good thing. To remind ourselves to soften around this whole tangle of physical and mental pain. One time I asked Manindraji, why does it hurt so much? Why does this practice of bringing our attention close to this mind-body disentanglement. Why does it hurt so much? And he said, because your heart is disentangling. The tangle is disentangling. So he pointed to one of the connected discourses in the Samyutta Nikaya. When someone asked uh, the Buddha, a tangle inside, a tangle outside. This generation is entangled in a tangle. I ask you, O Gotama, who can disentangle this tangle? And the Buddha answered, one established in virtue, one who is wise, developing the mind with wisdom, one who is ardent, that one can disentangle the tangle. So to remember to bring the tenderness, the loving-kindness to not just our outer world, but to our inner world, to the physical experiences of the body, to the mental experiences, to be able to bring that um, compassionate phrase that we use, I care about this pain. The traditional phrase is... "Mm." May I face this pain and this sorrow is one way that I put it. May I open to this pain, to this sorrow. But the way I do like to use it is to say, I care about this pain. And to um, establish my energy in the care of it. Not to get lost in the pain of it, which is sometimes what we can do. We can drown in the pain where our centering is not established in the care about it, 
but it's kind of like we've fallen into the river of sorrow and we're just allowing a drowning in it. We're unable to experience it with clarity when we do that. This is the indirect enemy of compassion. It's what is called unhealthy grief. Sometimes it's experienced as pity for oneself or pity for another. There is a healthy kind of grieving process where we can be conscious of whatever the process is as we face whatever we need to face. But when we're grieving sort of unconsciously, not being aware of what's coming up, just getting lost in it. This is an unhealthy kind of grief. We get so bogged down in the painful conditions of our life or the painful conditions of life around us, whether it be intimate, immediate, or in a bigger picture, that it becomes our identity. We lead into life with our wounds instead of leading into life with our wisdom. It becomes a habit pattern. Everything is based around. As William Stafford says, this is about our wounds. They turn into pearls. They take on a luster. They accumulate as decorations and badges. Meaning to say we get identified with being a suffering person creating a solid sense of self around our woundedness, around our suffering. So this is the, the whole poem. I, I just found it um, very piercing when I came across this from William Stafford. The name of the poem is Things That Hurt Me. Things that hurt me turn into pearls. First my tongue turns them over and over, meaning speaking about them. They have an edge that lacerates and then brings out a coating. They begin to shine. I can't leave them alone. They take on that luster of suffering, made pure. They accumulate as decorations around my neck or dangle from my ears. Trophies have a polish. You hold them close, but they hide a hollow of pain. So checking to see if we're doing that, if we're getting so identified with our suffering that it becomes who we are, that we are a wounded person, and that becomes our solid identity from which we work from. That's not to say that we can acknowledge that we're, there are some wounds in our heart and to see them, to face them with compassion, with mindfulness. Very different from being identified with them. So in disentangling the tangle, we must be careful about this so that we bring a mindful tenderness, a mindful caring, and not build it into a monolith that's bigger than life itself. So on the level of dealing with the world, if we're overcome with grief and pity, we cannot be effective. We cannot be of help to anyone. 
There's an ancient story um, about someone sinking in quicksand. If out of pity or with overwhelming grief, we jump in into the quicksand and try to help that person, it's like we're going to get sucked under ourselves. So it's, we must find a way to help where we're standing on um, ground that is established in compassion and wisdom. So the other powerful constant companion of compassion is equanimity. A lot has been said about that already. Balance, spaciousness, caring, unwavering, stable, and clear view of what's happening. It allows compassion to come forth, not tinged with reactivity, but tinged more with wisdom than anything else. Being able to take an action that we've thought about, maybe it's only a moment that we've thought about it, but it's a moment of balance. His Holiness is a uh, gave another example of this. I copied from something that I had read. He said that Tibetans reacted by attacking police, security forces, and innocent civilians. This made me very sad. It would be much more constructive if people tried to understand their supposed enemy. Learning to be compassionate is much more useful than merely picking up a stone and throwing at it at the object of one's anger. The more so when the provocation is extreme. For it is under the greatest adversity that there exists the greatest potential for the cultivation of good, both for oneself and others. So the far enemy of compassion is cruelty. It's that picking up the stone and throwing it at another to hurt another. It may be with our judge, it may not come out of our mouths. It may be just the judging mind. People can feel that. It may be words. It may be action. This is what the far enemy of compassion is, this kind of cruelty expressed in those ways, pushing away, striking out at what is disagreeable to us, what is painful to us. So this part sometimes is hard to see, how we strike out at ourselves, having resentment, judging, criticizing ourselves. This is a cruelty that sometimes we don't see. Cruelty towards ourselves, the opposite of compassion. Actress uh, Susan St. James lost her 14-year-old son in a plane crash. Maybe you remember this from some years. And after a year of anguish and rage, she forgave, had compassion for everyone and everything that might be responsible for the accident. Her hard-earned observation was this, and Steve quoted it the other night, Resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. 
This is a cruelty to ourselves, this resentment. So with both these supporting qualities of care, of balance, this compassion fully blossoms. The tenderness of care, of loving-kindness, the balance of equanimity, not pushing away, nor drowning in it. We're able to face life with more courage and to see that there is this truth of suffering that all of us live with when we can open to that fact, which takes a lot of compassion to open to. Again, this is great compassion to open to the truth of suffering to see that it's not really as personal as we make it out to be. It feels personal, but it's also universal. We see this profound human connection we have to one another. As Milarepa says, just as I intrinsically care for and try to heal a wound in my own leg as part of my own body, Why should I not reach out intrinsically to heal and care for the wound in another wherever it exists as part of this body? We feel that connection that we're not separate from one another. So the practice of compassion doesn't necessarily take the pain away but it changes our relationship to it. It changes one so that we're not pushing away, we're not striking out, nor are we turning away in denial. So I'd like to end with this uh, poem I often read with compassion by the poet Naomi Shihab Nye. And the name of it is Kindness and that particular kind of kindness, which is compassion. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. You must feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating corn and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian and the white poncho lies dead on the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all the sorrows and see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes, 
and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow, like a friend. So let's sit. Let the words dissolve. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.